Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Facing declining enrollment, should public schools open up seats to international students who have the means to pay a school district? That's a question West Hartford residents have been debating. After a for-profit company from China, Weiming Education Group, expressed interest in buying land being vacated by Yukon. Weiming wanted to open an international academy and then sent hundreds of these secondary students into West Hartford's Hall and Connard High Schools. After concerns from some in the community, West Hartford's now in the process of buying the land. What will the town do with this property? 58 acres with few development options. Are you a West Hartford resident? How do you feel about the way your town has handled this interesting dilemma? Join the conversation, 860-275-7266. You can comment on our website, wmpr.org slash where we live, and you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. To help us understand uh, this uh, situation in West Hartford, I'm joined in studio by Ronnie Newton, managing editor of we-ha.com, and Beth Carrion, a member of the West Hartford Town Council. Ronnie and Beth, thank you so much for joining Where We Live. Thank you very much. Thank you. Great to be here. Love NPR. Great. Well, Ronnie, I want to start with you uh, because you're reporting about um, this very interesting discussion in your town of West Hartford. Can you give us background on the background on this property that's being vacated by UConn in 2017? And then the timeline of how um, the discussion about what to do with this property, um, if you could kind of walk us through that timeline in West Hartford. Okay, uh, sure. Well, thank you. So, uh, now, I can't actually tell you how long the UConn-West Hartford um, campus has been there. I believe it's been since the 1960s. Um, and there is a 58-acre campus. Um, it's a very beautiful, you know, kind of bucolic setting. Um, lots of water on the site, which is actually something that's very important to a discussion about what to what can be done with it. Um there are a number of buildings. There are, I believe, 185,000 square feet of of space there right now, pretty much all classroom space, and parking on the opposite side of Troutbrook Drive for 1,050 vehicles. And also, as part of that property, um, the town has built several ball fields, Little League fields, and a Miracle League um, uh, accessible ball field. Um, all of the fields, actually, in any deal that would be happening with the campus, would get to remain with the town. That that was something that was that was set out from the very beginning. Um, so UConn announced several years ago that they were going to be be getting be closing the West Hartford campus. They wanted a downtown presence. I believe that that was um, in 2014. The board of trustees decided that UConn was going to move its campus to Hartford. So discussions pretty much began immediately. While we have this property, you know, if UConn's going to get rid of it, what what's to be done about it? Um, there, there's a lot of constraints on the property. Mm-hmm. So it's 58 acres, but only a small portion really can be developed because there are wetlands and actual floodplains and, and water on on the property. So only, I believe, about 30% of the land can be 
developed um, without really infringing on wetlands. And by developed, I mean have, you know, buildings on it. It could be more of it could be developed as parkland or as, you know, ball fields. But but as far as actually building structures there, it's pretty limited. Um, So there have been discussions with the neighbors. Um, Town manager Ron Van Winkle spoke to the University of St. Joseph, which um, borders the site, to see if they would be interested in it. Um, I should also say that the zoning, this is right in the middle of a residential area of West Hartford. It is just a few blocks from Bishop's Corner, but it is zoned single-family residential, and there's a special use permit allowing for a school to be there, just as there is with any of the elementary schools or middle schools or high schools in West Hartford. Most of them are in residential zones. So um, his first, you know, first thing that he did was talk to University of St. Joseph, University of Hartford to see if they would be interested in in purchasing the land or or, you know, using the land. And neither was interested. They just they didn't need it. So, you know, it was kind of on hold for a while um, because there was really no need to act until UConn made an official move, um, which which actually did happen. Um, I believe in 2015, um, or maybe that was in 2014. I'm sorry, in 2014. So, but but things were really on hold. I mean, it was a big announcement when it was made, but there was there was no official discussion about what to do with it. Um, the Children's Museum last fall expressed an interest mm-hmm. in moving. They were talking about you know Connie the whale being uh, trucked up um, Troutbrook Drive from from its current location. Um, a lot of people loved that idea, but the problem was how to pay for it. Yeah. Um, the buildings that are on the campus right now are are not in great shape. They would require a lot of renovation. To tear them down would cost, you know, somewhere around $5.5 million. Um, there's likely a lot of lead paint or and or asbestos, things that would need to be abated. Um, so, so that's an issue. It's 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 not the kind of thing where wow, we have this huge fifty-eight acre plot. Let's you know, we're going to build a lot there and we're going to add to the grand list. It's really not mm-hmm. something that simple. And and so was it earlier this year when Wei Ming Education Group expressed an interest to the town of West Hartford that they'd be interested in buying this land from the state. Well, my understanding is that Wei Ming first toured the campus. Now, West Hartford doesn't own this land. Um, we may be about to own it, you know, shortly, but it's owned by the University of Connecticut. Weiming reached out to UConn, we, we've since learned, a little less than a year ago, and took a tour of the campus. Weiming's first contact with the town of West Hartford was last fall, but they officially, um, in, in February, um, submitted a letter to the town manager and to UConn indicating their interest in in purchasing the property. I want to turn to Beth Kerrigan, who's a member of the town of West Hartford uh, Town Council. Uh, so we know when this property is um, being sold that the the state requires that the town have the first right of refusal to purchase the property. Uh, Wei Ming had an interest in the property, as uh, Ronnie mentioned, starting uh, late last year and then sending a letter as of February to the town that they really had a grand plan for this property. So I wanted to ask you about, from your perspective as a town council person, um, the transparency of of this project to the town and and why did the town step in? Um, Thank you. I think that the uh, letter of intent that was signed by Wei Ming 
um, sort of started the clock ticking. And that put a lot of pressure on the town council with respect to controlling that property. And we heard from the residents, and it seemed it was the opinion of the residents that we are in a better situation if we control ourselves. The problem was, is Weiming was offering $12.6 million. Now, that's a huge financial burden for the taxpayers to absorb. So during the time that Weiming uh, was negotiating uh, a price with UConn, Ron Van Winkle, you know, our town manager, was continuing negotiating. Well, like any good negotiation, you want to go to the highest bidder. Uh, but what the West Hartford offers is what's called a, a sort of a guaranteed purchaser. If we purchase the property, it would happen very quickly. If Weiming chose to purchase it or if we allowed them to purchase it, if UConn went in that direction, it could be a year and a half before anything happened. So I think that UConn was interested in uh, selling it so that it happened quicker than longer. Mm-hmm. Um, just from as an outsider reading all the coverage and the comments on social media, it seemed almost that the West Hartford uh, School District, the school board, the superintendent had a different view of the Wei Ming proposal than the town council, maybe town council being more cautious, as they should. Here's West Hartford School Superintendent Tom Moore speaking at a Board of Education meeting this week, broadcast by West Hartford Community Television. A lot of misconceptions out there about this still. I think that um, no matter what, I don't know that we can answer every question from every person. That being said, I've shared the MOU with anybody that has asked. I've shared the information about what's what was planned and where we are. And hopefully those kids find a good placement in the United States because they were great kids. So that's that's the shame of that. So Beth, it sounded like Superintendent Tom Moore and the school board were really looking forward to this uh, unique partnership if Wei Ming were able to um, buy the property. Can you tell me um, what has been the dialogue between the school district and uh, town council? I, I might be wrong, but I think that quote uh, is probably addressing the exchange program, uh, not the purchase of the property. Yeah, can I can I step in and, sure. and mention that because um, I, be, as as a reporter for West Hartford as a whole, I cover the board of education as well as as town council issues. Mm-hmm. So yes, Tom's Tom's quote there was regarding an exchange program where twenty one students and and it was possibly going to be as many as twenty five were going to be coming to West Hartford beginning this coming academic year um, for an exchange program. Those also, students, also connected to Wei Ming, though, Also correct? connected to Wei Ming. It was, it, the memorandum of understanding that he mentioned, the MOU, was only for this small pilot program um, of, of 21 students who'd been interviewed um, this spring by the assistant superintendent and, and one of the directors um, in China and chosen for this program. It was really a pilot program um, to just kind of test out the relationship with Weiming, but it didn't, even though it was the same company, it didn't directly have anything to do with what the plans might eventually be for the Yukon campus. Can we talk about that Boston Globe article that um, was published, I think, in late April? And it appeared that community opposition really started to grow when uh, the Boston Globe brought up some questions about a similar partnership that Wei Ming has with uh, schools in the Michigan public school system. Beth, do you want to go ahead? I, I, I will just say this. I think that um, it's really easy for bad information to spread very quickly, and oftentimes accurate information doesn't travel at the same speed. Um, I think that, unfortunately, because we had this sort of 45-day uh, clock ticking to make a decision whether or not we wanted to meet the $12.6 million, um, pr- 
price tag, uh, things happened very quickly. And I think that when conversations happen and good information comes out, uh, we can all make a better decision. We got a tweet from Tom who wants to ask uh, you, Beth, um, and also Ron, if you wanted to weigh in. Um, you know, his perspective was the Boston Globe, not government representatives, first informed the community of this three-way deal between the town, uh, Yukon, and Weiming. So, um, talk about some of the the misperceptions, uh, Beth, that are going on here. You mentioned, you know, bad information versus accurate information. Yeah, I mean, it's a really uh, unique situation because Wei Ming um, didn't even know. It wasn't even, hadn't gone through zoning. They had no idea what they could do there, if they were going to do anything there. Um, so the town always maintained control by way of zoning, um, as well as the Board of Ed. So there were really no decisions with respect to, you know, a school. They were making a, an offer to, to UConn to purchase that property, and that's where the town of West Hartford interceded and made an, made an offer that was accepted. You said that um, the town now um, that's in the position to buy this property, the town will then have more control of how the property will be used. So with the town's interest in this property, does that mean that uh, the town is um, would still entertain this Wei Ming proposal to open this international academy? I think like any good town, and West Hartford is a phenomenal town, uh, most important is our schools. And I don't think there'll be any decision that'll be made that's going to adversely affect our community that we all love um, or our schools. But right now we have um, someone wants to do a band shell, a dog park, children's museum, art gallery, public space. Uh, there's a coalition in town called the War Chiefs Sports Council who'd like to see it into a sports arena. So I think going forward, you're going to see a lot of conversation uh, with the town and the, and the residents about the future. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. What are the pros and cons in allowing international students into our public schools at a time when districts face declining enrollment and budget constraints? This is just one part of a debate going on in West Hartford after a for-profit company, Wei Ming Education Group, expressed interest in buying 58 acres in West Hartford to open up an international academy. I want to actually go to Callie, who's calling from Oxford, Michigan. Um, again, we mentioned earlier and through all the reporting that Ronnie and other reporters have been doing about West Hartford. Oxford, Michigan is a place where Wei Ming has, been, has a partnership with the public schools. So, Kelly, I want to talk with you. You're calling in from Michigan. Uh, what would you like to say about this situation here in Connecticut? Well, first, you know, we have firsthand experience with Wei Ming. They're in our school. They're in Oxford, Michigan. And I want to clear up some misunderstandings that are going on. Um, there's a lot of buzzwords that get used with this program. One is global education. Having interaction with children from one country and one particular private company doesn't make it global. Um, these students in Michigan, in Oxford, are housed in a hotel, which is over an hour away from our school. There's no amenities for these kids. They're isolated. They're kept to themselves. And we're talking 80 to 100 children that this happens to. So they're bused to school, and then they're bused back to the hotel. Then they have their Chinese education there and then they return for the next school day. So this isn't a good situation for our students. It isn't a good situation for their students. And this isn't what I want their students to think of when they think of America and form these bonds, that they're really isolated. Um, they say that it makes money filling seats. This, first of all, is public education. This is public property that us taxpayers, you know, you know built the building and are paying down the bonds. 
We know in Michigan it costs $13,000 to educate a high school student. We signed a contract for 20 years at $10,000. On top of that, we know that there's a $3,000 gap that the taxpayer is now covering that. That student is paid $7,300 out of our tax funds, our school aid, per student that comes here. So for every foreign student that comes into Oxford schools, $7,300 gets taken from the state fund and paid to our school. So that student isn't paying the full cost of the education. The tax dollars are. So that $7,300 is no longer available to educate the students in Michigan. That can't happen. That's not right. All right, Kelly. I want to thank you for some of raising some of the concerns that the uh, some of the community members in Oxford, Michigan, have had with uh, this partnership going on. But Beth, I want to turn back to you. I mean, these are c- legitimate concerns that West Hartford residents have raised at community forums, and the town council has said that they are being responsive to that. It's not like we're just going to rush through a partnership if there are questions about the mission of public education and should we be allowing a for-profit company to buy these seats per se. Yeah, and, and no doubt everyone has an opinion, but I think that in the next two years, what you'll, ex- what we'll all experience is a, in a a conversation, a dialogue. What's in the best interest of our community? What's in the best interest of West Hartford? And I, and I will say this: uh, we do things in a very methodical fashion. We will know all the ins and outs. We'll get into the weeds about what it's going to cost. If we have something of value, we'll be sure that it's not being funded by the state or we're not funding. Um, I think that everyone is jumping to conclusions and, again, driven by fear, which I understand. I have two young boys that are about to enter high school. So I think we all need to take a breath and uh, shows like this help to get the word out. Let's all come together. We, we live in a very diverse community, uh, and there is uh, a concern about integration. But those issues can be handled very well. We have exchange students um, in West Hartford schools now. We have trips to China and to Scotland and, and various countries. So I think that some of the fears that are raised, um, if they're real, can be addressed if necessary. And Ronnie, you wanted to respond. I, I do. And it's it's hard for me to, to I'm, I'm always talking with my hands. So I, I, do, do, th- I do that too. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think, I think what, what still hasn't been clear to, even, even though it's been said a number of times, is that the, the deal Weiming had, had, made with UConn was not contingent on having their students integrated into West Hartford Public Schools. That was something that was going to be discussed, but um, not that I want to be disparaging to another journalist, but but I actually don't feel that the Boston Globe reporting was was unbiased. I think it showed only one side of the story. Um, I've been writing about Weiming since the minute I heard about it. That was in February. There was a lot of information in that article. I think that the Boston Globe article stirred up the pot a lot, and and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It it, it made people aware. It got a lot of attention on social media, and it, it paved the way for a lot of discussions. But what town officials have made clear to me is that nothing would have gone forward as far as allowing potentially 250 um, students from the International Academy the intent not that they're only Chinese students, but that they're students from really all over the world, as well as um, students from other parts of the United States studying at this at this global academy. Um, that discussion hadn't really taken place with the Board of Education, but certainly would have before anything moved forward. 
I want to take a, a quick call now. Uh, Chris is calling from West Hartford, and he says he sits on the town council with Beth. So, uh, Chris, if you could um, say your question or comment quickly before a break. Sure, I'd be happy to. I uh, just want to respond. Good morning, Ronnie and Beth. Morning, uh, Chris. They know, morning. <laughs> they know me and um, uh, Chris Barnes were sort of vocal opponents of this, and I just wanted to lay the groundwork as to why, if I had a moment. Um, the issue that I had was, and Beth is very correct, that we do have a diverse community, but the issue with, with Wayne Ming and uh, Superintendent Moore really admitted this during the hearing is that this would be sort of unprecedented. The relationship is unprecedented. Our children would be a test case. And I saw no objective evidence whatsoever that it would be a material benefit to our students and to their education. And to me, that's too great a risk uh, to, to have to move forward. And then with respect to Wei Ming itself, I have concerns about their practices and who they are as an organization. They are under Homeland Security with respect to this two-year uh, program. During the hearing, it came out that uh, Wei Ming relies upon the town to ensure visa compliance, and especially the second year of, of visa uh, foreign students attending our high schools, which is there's no statutory authority for. And the, that is precisely what Homeland Security is investigating. So to me, unless and until those sort of issues can be resolved, uh, this sort of program, I think, should be a non-starter. So that's my position. I wanted to get that out there. I know Ronnie and uh, Beth are certainly well aware of it, but okay. I just wanted to add that to the conversation. I appreciate your call, Chris. Thank you. And I'll let Beth respond before our break. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, West Hartford has a very engaged community. Uh, you can't pull a fast one in, in our town, and, that, and that's the good news. It keeps us all honest. I will say, uh, with respect to Wei Ming, that unfortunately – uh, we were not in a position because Wei Ming was purchasing the Yukon property. Fortunately, our town, recognizing that maybe we needed to get control of this piece of property and do with it what's in the best interest of our residents, stepped up, made an offer. Yukon has accepted it, or hopefully we will go forward and, and close on that. And at that time, we can have conversations about what's in the best interest of our town. When we come back, we'll hear from a Connecticut company that recruits Chinese students for American high schools and colleges. And we'll get a statewide perspective from a group representing school boards on the question of what to do with declining student enrollment. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. They're called parachute kids. According to NPR's Code Switch, more and more teens from wealthy families in China are paying to attend American high schools. Why? Their parents believe a high school diploma from the U.S. will improve their chances of getting into an American college or university. The irony is the test-driven, high-pressure world of China's education system has spurred Chinese parents to send their kids here to become more creative and independent. And, of course, learn English. Often they attend private high schools in the U.S. Apex International Education Partners is a recruiting company based in Watertown, Connecticut, that connects Chinese students to attend public and private high schools in Connecticut. Co-founder David Guerrera joins Where We Live Now by phone. Hi, David. Hi, how are you? Thanks for having me on. Thank you. So this sounds like uh, quite a growing industry. Tell me what, uh, when you founded this company and what schools do you work with to uh, place these Chinese recruits into American high schools? 
Sure. So just to give a quick background, I actually served on my local board of education in Watertown, Connecticut, for two years. And uh, I founded this organization about five years ago. Right now we have 200 international high school students. But the difference between us and Weiming is that we have all of our students in private schools. So they're all here under F-1 visas. They study here for four years at a time. Uh, locally in West Hartford, we work with Northwest Catholic, Kingswood Oxford, and a, lo a lot of other great private schools. So that's a big difference between us and Weiming. But we also are looking to get into the public education sector as well. Uh, and the other difference is that we provide homestays. So instead of our students living in dorms, they're actually living with an American host families locally in West Hartford and throughout Connecticut. Um, you mentioned, again, this has been growing in the private uh, schools here in, in uh, this country, but now slowly moving into uh, the public education system. Have you been following what's been going on in West Hartford about this debate and the very valid questions you know, should public schools paid for by taxpayers, um, you know, be allowing for-profit companies to place these students in the schools? Yes, I've been following it very closely. I was actually at the public hearing um, in West Hartford where all the guests were there voicing their concerns. And, and my overall understanding of the project is that I think it had great intentions. I think the town council had great intentions and so the superintendent. But what I felt, it was, it was maybe too big of a project too fast. I think that public schools are definitely open to having international students. Uh, we've grown over five years to 200 students. It took us time. Our private schools started with several students before they had 10 or 15 students in their schools. So I think it's a great project with great intentions, but maybe it was just too fast for the community. Um, the other thing that was brought up during the meeting, which is very key here, is that the per pupil expenditure is not incremental. So just because you have another student in the school doesn't mean that it's gonna cost the district an additional $13,000 for that student. If you have a classroom of 20 students and you add another 21st student, it doesn't mean it's gonna cost that much more. So that's the big misunderstanding here, I think, is that yes, there is a cost per pupil, but just because you're adding a student or a few, it's not necessarily incremental. And I think that was one of the mis biggest misconceptions of whether this is replacing public school students or whether this is actually bringing private money to the schools and, and, and uh, going over publicly funded education. All right, David, um, I want to thank you for calling in and telling us a little bit about your company in uh, Watertown. Again, uh, David Guerrera, co-founder of Apex International Education Partners based out of Watertown, Connecticut. Thank you, David, for calling thank in. Thank you very much. Um, we're getting some uh, callers in now, so I want to take the phone, take a call from Susanna from West Hartford. Susanna, you're on Where We Live. Hi, good morning. Good morning. Um, so I, um, I'm, a, I'm a parent here, and um, what I've learned through all this is that students from China are going to pay Weiming about $40,000 a year in, in annual fees to come here and attend the public schools for junior and senior year. So I have two thoughts here. Is the mission of public secondary schools, schools that are funded by local and state taxes, to educate China's 1%? And what is the role of the state in making open choice more attractive to districts? How can Open Choice compete with 13000 that the district will get from Weiming? All right, Susanna, thank you for your question. Beth, do you want to take that? I'll, I'll, I'll try my best. Um, again, I think it's dangerous to throw around numbers. Um, it's, it's my understanding, and, and again, I'm only one council person, that the details of this, and again, it, it, it may not happen. The, w what's happened right now is the town has said, we want to control the destiny of 58 acres of land in the center of our town. 
and what's what's in our best interest and how to do that so it's fiscally responsive and also enriches our, our community. Um, I want to ask you real quick, Beth, before we go on to uh, Patrice McCarthy, who's uh, part of the Connecticut Association of Boards of Education. Um, we wanted to frame this show not just about what's happening in West Hartford as a community, but you know the question of declining school enrollment across the state, across the country. And so tell me what West Hartford has seen in the secondary grades. We know that Hall and Conard are ranked as some of the best high schools in the country. But tell me about the challenges with declining student enrollment and um, the challenge that that puts the, the town in. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that challenge is new to the history of education. Um, through the years, I've gone through schools with a lot of kids in class, and then less kids in class, and teachers laid off, and then teachers rehired. Um, so the question before us is, how do we want to address this? Mm-hmm. And I think that's the question that needs to be answered. All right, Beth. I want to uh, go now to. Patrice McCarthy. She is Deputy Director and General Counsel at the Connecticut Association of Boards of Education. Patrice, you're on Where We Live. Good morning. So I wanted you to respond. Were you able to hear uh, Beth's last comment about yes, I was. this uh, can, This has been a challenge uh, with, in schools for some time. So um, we wanted to ask you, as, a, as part of CABE, to talk about how school districts handle declining enrollment, um, along with the question of you know, minimum budget requirements. Absolutely. Those are significant challenges that almost all of our districts are facing in Connecticut right now. Um, The trend projections are that there will be a continuing decline in the school-age population uh, through 2025, and we expect that statewide that uh, decline might be as high as 12 percent. However, the projections, and these are all from the Connecticut State Data Center, show that as many as 16 districts will actually have an increase in student population. So every local school board has to look at what their projections are, look at what their um, building, new building projects are in in terms of housing in the community. And it's important to remember that a a gradual decline in student population doesn't result in a significant dollar savings in the education budget because there is a large infrastructure that has to be in place regardless of of the student population. But districts are looking at some areas where they can achieve savings. Many districts recently have, as a result of small declines in student population, been able to implement programs such as a full-day kindergarten rather than a part-day, something that they had always wanted to be able to put in place, but because of space constraints, as well as budget constraints, had not been able to do so. So it's both a combination of looking at savings, but also seizing an opportunity to provide a more comprehensive education experience for the students. Um, has the Connecticut Association of Boards of Education, have you been watching the, this, the interesting dilemma that the town of West Hartford um, is facing with this question of a for-profit company that wanted to come in, possibly with a plan in the out years to have some of these students funneled into um, their high schools that, um, like you say, all schools are dealing with declining enrollment? Um, what's Cabe's position on, on this interesting question before the town? Well, it's very much a local decision, and I think we've seen over the past several months uh, those discussions take place where they should be taking place within the local community. Uh, Many districts are looking at opportunities to provide a 
a more diverse educational experience uh, for their students through a variety of exchange programs, through international travel, and that those decisions very much have to reflect the priorities of the community as well as the fiscal constraints within the school budget. All right. Well, I want to thank uh, Patrice McCarthy, Deputy Director and General Counsel at the Connecticut Association of Boards of Education. Thanks for your perspective today, Patrice. Thank you. And I want to, uh, before we um, get to our last segment of the show, I want to um, go back to you, Ronnie. Um, both you and Beth have said that um, this process has been, you know, very measured, uh, trying to be transparent. Uh, people have concerns and questions, and the town is looking to address those concerns and questions in an appropriate way. But what are the next steps? So the town is uh, nego- has negotiated a purchase price, but the land has yet to be purchased. So tell us what's happening next. Right. So I think, I mean, and, and I could actually, I mean, I, I have probably written 15,000 words over the past couple of months about this <laughs> issue and listened to hours and hours of, of conversations among, you know, residents and um, you know, and, and officially in front of the town council and the board of education. So, and I, and I think the the four plus hour um, public information session wasn't really a hearing, but was an info session um, on May second. was was very enlightening, and it really gave residents a chance to to listen and to be heard. And and I think that you know, following that, it um, it made it clear that. The town of West Hartford, um, it was in our best interest to have control of that piece of property and and really take allow us the time because we were going to have to decide by we'd been been given an um, an extension until the middle of June, but it was going to need to be a pretty quick decision about what to you know whether or not to spend twelve point six million dollars for that property. The town manager very adeptly was able to to negotiate a much much more, um, you know, a, a price that that made more sense for the town. And from UConn's perspective, it was a certain sale, and that's what um, Richard Orr, UConn's general counsel, said. He's he's come to a couple of town council meetings, um, knowing that the town could actually come up with the money. And actually, the initial deposit's only two hundred and fifty thousand dollars, which will be made once it's gone to town planning and zoning. Um, that's that's where the town council sent it to. Planning town planning and zoning at its meeting the other day. Um, the town planning and zoning will meet on it in the beginning of June. The town council will then move to to authorize the purchase and sale agreement at its meeting in the middle of June, I think June 14th, um, and then we'll be required to make just a $250,000 deposit. After due diligence, another seven hundred. If we decide to go forward, another seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars will be due, and then the balance of of the five million, so the the four million dollars won't be due for two years, um, and then there's an arrangement with UConn so that if the town decides to sell it to a third party um, during that time, or actually any time, I believe before 2024, I'm not a hundred percent sure of the exact terms of the agreement. Um, although I have them sitting in front of me, can't read them quickly enough. Um, the UConn will get ninety percent of the profit, so night. West Hartford will not lose the money that it's, you know, will keep a portion of it. UConn's guaranteed to get at least $5 million out of it. So depending on how much West Hartford has spent, UConn will get 90% of of the profit of, of the sale of that 
of that land. But it allows the town the ability to, to take that measured approach and decide, you know, do we want to spend the money to knock the buildings down and turn it into a park or, you know, a, a sports facility or do we want to sell it to Weiming or some other kind of educational institution? Um, the town manager has said there will be a lot of conversations with residents going forward, um, probably, you know, in large and small groups just to really gauge what the public feels. But, you know, you, you need to consider the economics of it and you need to consider the, the quality of life and you need to look at a whole lot of factors. It's it's really it's a really, really complicated decision on a lot of fronts. I want to take time to thank Ronnie Newton, managing editor of we-hot.com. Thank you so much for your perspective this hour. Thank you. And Beth Kerrigan, always great to see you, member of the West Hartford Town Council. We're going to be following up with how this process continues. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Coming up next, we'll focus on higher education, where there's been a definite uptick in the number of international students who are attending American colleges and universities. This is where we live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Coming up tomorrow, we'll have a conversation with the Office of Child Advocate about the use of restraints and seclusions in schools, and we'll hear from a parent of a developmentally disabled student about the challenges she faces in her child's public school education. Today, we're focusing on the question of whether public schools should accept international students who have the money to pay for an American education. We're wondering, with the situation happening in the town of West Hartford, how this trend of international students from China and India, among other countries, has impacted American colleges and universities. On the phone now is Peggy Blumenthal, senior counsel, senior counselor rather, to the president of the Institute of International Education, which releases data on international student trends in the U.S. She manages the Fulbright the Fulbright Program for the U.S. State Department. Peggy, thanks for joining the conversation on Where We Live. Happy to be here. So explain the trends. When did we start seeing an influx of international students in our higher education system? Well, that's been happening really uh, over many decades, but the sharpest increases have come, I would say, in the last uh, five, ten years when the numbers from China really began to soar. And so tell me about how these trends, these numbers soaring uh, from China and India, among other countries, how are they impacting the campuses of our American colleges and universities? Well, they're impacting it uh, in a number of ways. And I would say the first thing to say is that despite these very large numbers of international students who are here in the United States, close to a million of them, uh, international students still are less than 5% of the total U.S. higher education population. So it's very important to keep this in perspective. Uh, on certain campuses and in certain departments, they may represent a larger share, but overall, they're still less than 5%. Um, they, they do uh, help internationalize the classroom in important ways that American students also benefit from. Uh, because, as you may know, most American students don't study abroad when they are in college, and yet their careers are going to be global. So it's very important for them to interact with uh, peers from China, from India, from other countries before they enter the workplace and to get the perspectives that other students bring to the uh, academic pursuits. Um, another way they influence it, of course, is that over two-thirds of the students who come from abroad pay their own way and pay full tuition, um, which makes it possible for schools that are financially uh, hurting 
to maintain um, services for all students and to maintain scholarships for needy American students as well. You know, earlier in the program, we heard from one of these um, recruiting companies actually based in Connecticut that find um, students from China that really want to have an education here, and he places them, helps place them in private schools to get that quality education. But when we look at the um, the U.S. college and university system, um, is that enough of a draw in itself that um, these students don't have to be paired up with universities through recruiting companies such as this? Can you talk about the process? Absolutely. That's a very important question that you've raised because um, a lot of Chinese parents are completely unfamiliar with the U.S. higher education system, and they think it's that they're going to have to pay somebody to be the middleman and to be the matchmaker. But in fact, um, as you know, most Americans uh, just go directly to an, uh, college websites and, and navigate it themselves. Um, so more and more, we're encouraging students internationally to um, not go through a recruiter unless they really uh, feel they need to. Um, there's actually a free service provided by the State Department all over the world uh, that helps students navigate the uh, admissions process. It's called Education USA, and um, it help students figure out how to get letters of recommendation, uh, you know, how to um, uh, write essays, uh, things that uh, foreign students very often don't know about. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. What experiences have you, the listener, had with international students on college campuses? Did you travel internationally yourself? What did you learn? 860-275-7266. Comment on at our Facebook or Twitter at Where We Live. Um, uh, Peggy, you had mentioned that um, just in the last 15 years or so, you're really seeing that interest in China growing. Um, can we talk about what's happening with their economy and this new middle class that can come here and afford to pay the full tuition rate? Yes, absolutely. The economy in China is what's uh, part of what's driving this growth in Chinese students. There's increasingly uh, middle class and upper middle class families who look at the opportunities in higher education within China, and they just are not satisfied. Uh, while there's certainly a handful of world-class institutions of higher education in China, the huge number of students who want to get a college education are not able to go to those you know, top-ranked five or six schools. And the parents feel that the kind of education that America offers is really better suited for uh, training young people in the 21st century. Uh, it teaches American colleges and universities teach students to think independently, to um, be interdisciplinary, uh, interdisciplinary if they want to be, to um, challenge a professor rather than just sit passively and uh, listen to and regurgitate what the professor thinks. And these are all uh, unique aspects of U.S. higher education that attract students from all over the world. Ken, will you walk me through the process about the visa program for students from other countries who are looking to uh, get the, their education here? Yes. A student who uh, is accepted by a U.S. college or university um, gets a form that they then take to the U.S. embassy in that country and apply for uh, the student visa. Um, the great, great majority of those applications are approved, even though uh, there are some uh, feelings in each country that maybe they're never going to be able to get a U.S. visa. It's simply not the case that any legitimate student who uh, has been accepted by a legitimate U.S. university and can prove that they have the financial resources to pay and that they have the uh, academic and English competence to su succeed and that they plan to return home after their education, anyone, if they fulfill those three criteria, they're almost guaranteed to get a visa. I want to take a call now from Mary calling from West Hartford. Thanks for calling where we live, Mary. 
Hi, thanks for taking my call. I just had a quick question. Um, your, the speaker you just had on, um, uh, I can't remember, uh, uh, had a quote. She said that having international students in American colleges, and we've been talking about international students in West Hartford high schools, helps American students because most of them are going to be working globally. And I'm just wondering, I hear that rationale bandied about um, when we talk about adding programs like the ICB Academy in West Hartford and then this Chinese school, and are there any actual statistics that can tell us how many people will be working globally? Because I've, in my life, I'm 50 years old, none of my friends, my husband, my relatives, none of them work globally. We all work locally. So I'm just wondering, that's like an empty, is that an empty phrase, a marketing phrase, or is there actual statistics that say, yes, X percentage of our high school students will be working globally? And what does it mean to work global? It's a very broad term. And I'll take my answer off the air. Thanks. Thank you, Mary from West Hartford. Uh, Peggy, can you answer Mary's question? Yes, and I appreciate the question, actually, because uh, Mary's absolutely right. That's a very broad term. And when I say uh, their careers will be global, I don't mean that they will necessarily be physically located overseas, although many uh, jobs do involve tra uh, traveling abroad uh, at some point in their career. But what I mean is that uh, either uh, the company they work for will have uh, suppliers in Asia, clients in Asia. Uh, they might be um, purchased by an, a, a foreign firm. They might themselves, uh, the company may themselves purchase or have subcontracts with uh, international firms. In other words, the American economy is so interwoven now with the economies of other countries that it's almost impossible to find a sector of the economy that does not uh, interact with companies internationally. I want to talk more about um, the economy because um, we know that not everyone – it doesn't sit well with a lot of um – I shouldn't say a lot. It doesn't sit well with some people in our communities that, uh, you know, China is our global competitor. And um, the idea that we we have seen our manufacturing footprint change in this country drastically. So many jobs are going overseas. And what China then provides uh, to the economy that undervalues uh, what uh, American companies have uh, tried to maintain for so many years. And so can you answer that question for people who, you know, they find it hard to kind of, you know, want to embrace this idea that we're allowing these students to come here to get the best of both worlds? Well, let me answer that actually two ways, because it's a very important question. Um, the first que uh, point uh, that ch our jobs are going to China, um, I think it's really important to realize that China we buy a lot from China, but we also sell a lot to China. That we, uh, the Chinese uh, economy uh, is very tightly linked with our economy, uh, and that's not just a one-way street. Um, it's true that manufacturing jobs are, are going overseas, but the kinds of products that we produce, the kinds of services we pr produce, are also uh, being purchased overseas. Um, so it's a, it is a two-way street. Um, and the other thing I would say is that for every Chinese or Asian student who comes here, um, those that go home, go home with a much better appreciation of American uh, business ethics, American values, American society, and they become actually better uh, business partners for us. And then there are those that don't go home, that stay, and that start businesses here, and they create many, many jobs. Um, I don't know if uh, uh, your listeners are familiar with the Chobani yogurt story, but oh, yeah. uh, a Turkish... <laughs> 
student came here, international student came here from Turkey, uh, stayed on, created a, a little yogurt firm, which was turned into Chobani, which is the biggest seller of Greek yogurt, Greek or slash Turkish yogurt. And he employs hundreds of people and has just recently uh, decided to uh, share the profits with all of his employees. So suddenly this one Turkish international student has transformed his local town into a, a vibrant uh, profit-sharing um, industry. And this is happening, you know, in many, many other places, in, in the IT sector, uh, Indian and Chinese students who've stayed here and created startup firms. There are, uh, there are data, but I don't have them right at hand, but it's, it's, it's hundreds of thousands of jobs are created through international students who then go on to create businesses here, and millions more who create businesses at home that uh, end up dealing with America. And Peggy, uh, just under a minute before we uh, end the show, but uh, quickly talk about how you see these numbers of international students growing um, on our college campuses. I think that uh, they are likely to continue growing uh, because I think the desire internationally for a world-class education is not going to shrink anytime soon. The numbers may not always be coming from China. You know, there may be students uh, coming from Cuba now that the uh, relationship has been restored there. Uh, The numbers may go up from uh, Brazil or from uh, other countries around the world that are just opening uh, their um, educational opportunities uh, and, and parents are becoming aware of the value of U.S. higher education. That being said, I think that American students are going to continue needing to have this real-life understanding of how to deal with international uh, colleagues and peers. And there's no better place to start doing that than in college. We'll have to leave it there. Thank you so much, Peggy Blumenthal, Senior Counselor to the President of the Institute of International Education, which releases data on international student trends in the U.S. Thank you, Peggy, for your time. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives, technical producer Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel, and this is Where We Live. In 1971, 